0: I have some very special personal um, notes to myself here today. One of which says this: "It says no emotion, or no raising of your voice. Be distinct and be direct." Now that's different from me normally because I'm I'm not necessarily a Floyd McDonald, but I might be one notch below. And uh, but today I don't want to I don't want to commingle that. I don't want to reach into. Any type of showmanship, I don't want to try to reach into even my own personal personal zeal because I don't want to misstate some of the things that I'm going to share. I'm going to share from my heart very sincerely here, especially initially before I even turn to the passages of the Scripture. I'm going to do what Pastor Burton often did as my pastor, and that was he was very transparent before the congregation. And uh, this is one of my greatest struggles personally. This is an inward trauma that I face. It's a personal inward trauma. And it relates to going back to last week's message. Last week's message um, had an edge to it that I'll explain more carefully here in a little bit. It was entitled, The Necessity of Division. So today I'm entitled in the message, The Necessity of Division Explained. And, the, and I'll give you more reason for that in just a moment of time. But my inward trauma is, is I, every, anytime I speak something that relates to cultural issues or political issues... I have an inward trauma because of this right here. Number one, I know that every time you and I, it's not just you, it's, nor is it just me, it is all of us turn the news on, we are inundated with political issues. Right. Let's be honest. We are. From the, if, you, if you scan Facebook to check on your church family like I do, um, I can't even get to you because I've got to wade through various political ads and things that are, that are flashing up there. And, and then I know, and then sometimes, you know, you can feel overwhelmed with all these issues. And then you come to church, and then there it is again. You know, and then, uh, you know, um, whether I'm nicer than Trump or more honest than Hillary, you know, either way, <laughs> either way, it doesn't matter sometimes it's still you know that 's still challenging, okay I, I understand that nobody has said that to me i 'm just saying that 's me that 's my own heart it 's an inward trauma. Some churches avoid addressing anything that can be deemed cultural or political because of that very reason and and I try not to throw a stone i do I do sometimes throw a stone at those churches if if they feel like it is' more spiritual to be muted because i can 't necessarily agree with that, but at the same time my felt my, my personal again. Thought is this, and I hate to say it for lack of a better word. It's darned if you do and darned if you don't. Okay? Because if I fail to speak in relation to sometimes things that can be cultural or political, then the only information source that might go to some are, is the media. And the, uh, the last I've checked, the media doesn't try to balance what's happening politically with the Bible. That's the, I haven't seen very much of that on any of the news broadcasts. And so so again, that puts me in that awkward stage or place just a little bit. And now if you only come to church on Sunday mornings, then you don't get the full doctrine that's taught at First Assembly. You don't get Wednesday nights when we're looking into the history of ancient Israel and things that we've been looking at. You don't get that or some and on Sunday nights, a lot of times here we deter totally completely from that subject, but it's Sunday mornings when I seize that moment. And, um, and here's what, inside, this is just to be honest, it's not as glorious or as fulfilling as just preaching Christ crucified. That's just the reality from my perspective. Uh, it is. But it's sometimes you just have to preach out of a necessity. Sure. Uh, that necessity, uh, sometimes it's even of your own personal convictions. Sure. And so, but now with that, let me just tell you uh, what happens sometimes, you know, to me as a speaker. Sometimes... You uh, say some things, and when you're in a lecture style, teaching or preaching, you say some things that you would like to maybe explain later a little bit more fully because you, you get the privilege to look back and you think, man, did I, did I clarify that? Politicians do it all the time, right? We're seeing Donald Trump trying to tone down his demeanor, and Hillary just says, I made a mistake, and so, for me, I just—I don't want either. I don't want to be deemed arrogant or boastful or, or say ugly things, but I don't want to be somebody that doesn't speak the truth either, okay? So, again, I'm just finding my place here. I'm just trying to find my place, but I want to do something. I want to show you that even Jesus had to go back and clarify statements, let me show you today. I'm going to go to the gospel of Matthew. They're going to put some scriptures on the board in just a moment. But in Matthew 13, Jesus may, and, 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 and I'm not doing this to justify myself. Let me just say this. I'm just using this as a comparison for a moment. Because if I'm going to, if I'm going to try to get any bit of correction, I want it to become uh, from the image of Christ. I see him. I see what he did and how he functioned and what he had to sometimes do. And then if I need to do what he did, I'll do what he did. Right? Does that make sense? So Matthew 13 and the 10th verse, this is about the parables. It says, they came to him. Now, I'm, we're going to go to the 34th verse in a moment. But let me just kind of just read just generally for a few moments. The disciples came to him and said to him, why do you speak in parables? You know, or so, because the parables were often difficult to understand. Jesus might take a whole afternoon to teach him parables, and people really didn't even understand what he was saying. They were just there for the miracles, okay? And so, he's, then in private, his disciples asked him about that, and then he said, because it's given for you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but for them it is not given, and then he kind of addressed it a little bit further, talking about that there's a blindness on the people, but, but in the 16th verse, he said, but blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear, and, and he said, Many prophets and righteous men have desired to see what you see and have not seen them and hear what you hear and have not heard them. And so often, again, it was relating to parables that were sometimes difficult to understand, and his disciples would then have to come to him privately because they were just like the multitude, perplexed. They, were, they didn't understand. But they had an opportunity to ask him privately, Can Explain to us what you meant. Let me show you that per example. The 34th verse, and that's what we're going to start by putting on the screen, I think. The 34th verse, it says, "...all these things spake Jesus unto the multitude in parables. And without a parable spake he not unto them, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. Then Jesus sent the multitude away." and went into his house, and his disciples came unto him. Here, I just wanted you to see the example. Declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. What, it, what that means is they had heard him teach it just like everyone else, and they didn't understand. So they seized the moment to ask him privately, Lord, help us to understand. Let me, I'm going to go a little bit further. Matthew chapter 16, since we're in Matthew, we're just going to turn the page real quickly. Matthew 16, verse number 6. It says, uh, look, what, look at the statement that Jesus said here. He said, take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. And you know what? If you read that whole passage, the, the, the disciples take the next 15 minutes talking about it's because they didn't, they, they didn't go by, uh McDonald's on the way and pick up Happy Meals for everybody. And, and so they're like, oh, my gosh, whose job was that? And then Jesus is kind of like, ah, when are you going to understand? I'm not talking about that. And so, because it, it, it says there in the 12th verse, then understood how that he bade them not of the leaven of, the, of bread, actual bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees. So here's men and women walking with Jesus, or excuse me, men walking with Jesus, and they're lacking a little bit of understanding. And I probably won't go to this passage, but in Mark 7, actually Jesus kind of reproved his disciples because he got frustrated with them uh, you know, at one point when he was like, Are you also? You know, they kind of kept asking him, Tell us what you doing? what's this mean? What are you know, and they finally said, Can you not just finally it's on the wall, the writing's on the wall? Are you not without understanding? He kind of reproved them later. So he, even though they were frustrated with him at times because of his parables, he was frustrated with them a little bit because they didn't understand. The message that I preached last week was entitled The Necessity of Division. And I shared it and it's Context out of a passage of Scripture that was in the book of 1 Corinthians that um, we're going to highlight at the end. But I'll read it just now for just a moment. In 1 Corinthians 1, uh, a passage of Scripture that speaks about where the Apostle Paul said, There must be heresies among you, King James English, that they which are approved may be manifest among you. And the word heresy means sects, S-E-C-T-S, or sectarianism, divisions. He said there must be, in essence, divisions. The New International Version says, no doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. And lastly, the, the New Living Translation says, there must be divisions among you so that you which have God's approval will be recognized. And I was making a point that even within the context of us being in pursuit of unity, sometimes it still falls for us a need for division because we have sometimes distinct doctrinal differences. Right? That's, what the, that's what Paul said. And and so and I shared that and I, I made some strong statements with it and and uh, kind of and for the sake of time I'm not going to go back and reiterate the entire message. But I, I spoke about several passages where you know the the apostles themselves even said strong statements in relation to doctrine that could cause division. Let me give you an example. Second John verse ten. I read it last week. I'll read it again. It says, "If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine." Receive him not into your house, nor neither bid him Godspeed. Now, those are strong words. I didn't write those. I just read those words. And I was just showing you that the apostles said that sometimes doctrine can even divide the populace of the church. And he said, so if somebody comes in... And he's not in harmony with this doctrine that John is exhorting them to actually not even. And that's strong. Said, so don't even bring them into your house. Those are really strong words, words that I've not ever echoed. And uh, Romans 16 and 17 says, Mark those which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. And so and then I also alluded to the fact that Jesus himself was one that uh, said, I didn't come to bring peace. And that's hard to understand because we think of him as the prince of peace, right? And, and even in the very beginning of not his ministry but his life, the angel said peace. The angel that announced his birth to the shepherds sleeping in the field outside of Bethlehem. Peace on earth and goodwill toward men. But then out of his own mouth, he said, don't think I came to send peace. I came to send a sword. He said, because the doctrine that I'm going to put in your heart may divide a family, what well, that means is doctrine is a belief system, right? And, and, and he spoke at first to his culture. And let me just give you, let me take it to its true biblical application. John 1 says, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him and believed on him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. So he came to the Jewish people first. And what he was in essence saying, there might be a dad who's Jew who doesn't believe. And there may be a son who believes and he said and because of that belief it will create a division it doesn't mean that that father won't still love son it doesn't mean that son won't still love father right but it just means that in the sense of deep unity and fellowship even though they are of the natural lineage they don't have the same spiritual father are y'all hearing what i'm saying Okay, and so I'm just using those as as, as examples. Well, here's where I made some strong statements that I went back and listened to the message, and I felt like I should bring some clarity. The message will be built around clarifying some of these statements right here. I said this, and and I said, What are some of the issues or stances that some possess that I personally refuse to unite with within the church? And it's that term, and I'm going to clarify it for you more. Uh, and about what does it mean to be united in the sense that I was using in deep fellowship. I'll clarify that more in a moment. I said some of these are, are familiar and, and it's not new doctrine. I said a belief in and a support of abortion. I'm going to ask you all not to respond audibly other than just the occasional nod or something of nature because I'm not trying to, to uh, create a frenzy in here today. Or churches that affirm homosexuality as acceptable behavior. Those are just, those are familiar Right? They are. This is familiar. This is not something you haven't... not. It's not that you've never heard that. Right? And so... And then I said people... This was the strongest statement that I'm going to bring greater clarity to. People who support the Democratic Party because of its allegiance to abortion and open homosexuality and gay marriage. That's a strong statement, and I understand that. And it can leave some complexity in your mind if that needs a clarification. And I'm here today to bring that clarification to you, okay? in this sense right here. So, uh, and, I, of course, I made some other statements, but for the lack of time, if you want to listen to it, it's on hebrewfirst.com, hebrewfirst.com, and you can go back and listen to this. And the, the reason why I feel compelled to clarify this is because as a pastor, 2 Timothy 3 exhorts me, or 2 Timothy 2 says, The servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle to all men. And so I can sometimes make a strong statement with a lot of passion, and it seems like I am resentful, bitter, or angry. When rather, I'm simply passionate about a particular principle. And I'm just trying to, I want to relate that to you with a little bit more uh, clarification here today. So, knowing that I just gave you a brief nutshell, let me tell you, if you were here Sunday night, here's why I found frustration in my preaching on Sunday. And I don't like to preach from frustration. Matter of fact, it's against one of my core principles. One of my core principles about preaching is not preach from frustration, but preach from inspiration. And so, but today I'm preaching from explanation, and uh, but with this, I confessed on Sunday night that my personal frustration was created over I saw a little video clip of a Baptist church in Philadelphia at the time of the Democratic National Convention, where the pastor was a Caucasian pastor. It was a mixed congregation where he welcomed Hillary to the pulpit and gave her the pulpit, and before he gave her the pulpit, he said, and I hope and pray that this is the next president of the United States. And I was just grieved because the pastor had taken his pulpit and gave it to somebody who has such a lasting, you know, a long legacy of, uh, you know, some very questionable things. I didn't say that I thought he should give his pulpit to, to Donald Trump. I just was grieved. That grieved me. And so Tuesday is when I went about to set about to prepare my sermon, and I prepared my sermon out of that frustration, okay? That's, this, this is the honest truth. No emotion here today. That's just I'm being honest. But now let me cl- start the clarification. Division arises from differing viewpoints, theologically, politically, and sometimes, most times, it's a blend of both. And that's ca- Worldwide. Theologically, division on religion separates people groups all over the world. Difference on the means of government separates people groups all over the world. Correct? Now, let me go a little bit further. Now, what I was trying to say is that without implying that I was speaking by prophetical unction, my intention was to foretell that the political issues of our generation are becoming the thing that is going to divide the church during our generation the way that theology has kind of historically divided the Protestant movement. Let me explain to you. We have Assembly of God Church here. We have a Nazarene church down the road. We have a Church of God across the street. You don't have to throw a rock very far to hit the Church of God Church across the, the street. You can run right up the hill and there's a Methodist church. At one time in the history of the Protestant movement, theology was our dividing point. I was semi-predicting that I believe a shift is taking place in our culture that it is political viewpoints that's going to create the division. And that you have to—I res- don't—I'm I, just saying—I'm not saying I'm speaking prophetical. I'm just saying it's kind of predictive in my heart because I see things kind of trending that way. Now let me go a little bit further. Y'all still with me? All right, it says here, no emotion, no raising of voice, be distinct and be direct. Now, let me go back and again talk about this necessity of division for a moment. Here's the reality about church and even the scriptures and, and also about Jesus. Even though we as preachers and pastors and leaders never intend to do so, but the reality is sometimes your particular doctrine, your viewpoints, whatever, it can be offensive to people. Now let me go. Let me show you the example, and you're going to say, "Well, you're trying to just use Jesus as your example." I'm just doing it for. I'm not trying to use Jesus as an example to justify my means. I'm only going to show you a comparison. Let me go to John chapter six, and I'll ask you to go there with me. John chapter six for just a moment. I've got a couple other passages, and then I'm going to really narrow this for a moment. I may have to just kind of just paraphrase a couple of these passages. But in John chapter six, Jesus made some real hard statements. Let's see what he said. Let's try to put ourselves in the first century. He's in a synagogue uh, that's been taught the word of God, the Torah, the law of Moses. All those are deeply rooted in the Torah, the law of Moses. And Jesus just made some real strong statements. In the previous verses, here's what he said. He said, your fathers ate manna in the wilderness. And so they knew, you know, and their minds were, yes, that was the exodus. That's when God opened heaven and he dropped manna. And they got up in the morning and there was manna. And there was failed manna six days a week. And they ate manna for six days. There was no manna on the Sabbath day. And then it started all over again. And then their hearts were, yes, he said, said, but I'm here to tell you, I'm the true bread. Your fathers ate manna and they're dead. But if you want to live, you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. I mean, you know, if that was the first time you ever heard that doctrine. Now, you and I can look back on it through the lens of that, called the cross. And we can understand its application. But if you'd have been in his audience that day, you might have been part of this group right here. Look at the 60th verse. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they heard this, they said, Wow, that's a hard saying. Who can even hear it? So Jesus knew it himself that his disciples murmured at it. And he said, Well, does this offend you? And then he said, what shall you see if you see the Son of Man ascend where he is at before? It's the Spirit that quickens, the flesh profits nothing. It takes the Spirit to understand these things, is what he's saying. Their Spirit and their life, the Word of God's are, the words of God. And he said, and there are some of you that believe not, for, because Jesus knew from the beginning who it were who believed not and who should betray him. And therefore said unto you that no man can come unto the Father, except it were given to him of my Father. And from that time many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Now that's a tough place. It's hard to see people walk away from you. It's hard to see when you used to have like 15 or 20 with you and you look back and there's four. You know, because we get sometimes gain strength from those that are around us. And so, but Jesus was courageous enough to stand for what he believed and the truth that he knew that, that, that he was sharing with the world. And he even asked the most personal question to his disciples. He said, will you also go away? That's a strong question, isn't it? It's demanding a response of the people. And so I'm only saying that to you today is that sometimes pastors oftentimes preach doctrine that sometimes is pretty offensive. It's hard. It makes you evaluate. It makes you look deep inside. You know, and sometimes even the best of people have disagreements in the church. Remember the story, won't take the time to go there, Paul and Barnabas? Paul and Barnabas, you know, traveled together on the first missionary journey and saw all kinds of miracles In Acts chapter 15, the Bible says there was a dissension between them that was so great that Paul said, I'm going this way. And Barnabas said, well, you go that way because I'm going this way because I don't really want to be around you right now. That's just paraphrasing, but that's in the passage. It's there. One went one way, one went the other because they couldn't. And I'm just saying that I'm going back to validating what I said last week in the sense that sometimes doctrinal belief creates division. And it's not always easy, and sometimes it's painful. Right? And again, I'm not trying to create the division. I'm trying to foretell you that we may see more in the days ahead. Does that make sense? So let me read exactly the way I wrote things. I'm going to skip that other passage of Scripture. Again, I am predicting the inevitability of it and the actual reality that division is created by, listen to this, by not just theological difference but political difference. Because let me say this. Please hear what I'm about to say right now. Please hear You can't miss this and say, well, Pastor Brown was preaching too fast. I couldn't understand him. Or he was jumping up and down and running around the stage like he does a lot of times. No. Listen to what I'm saying. Political ideology stems from your personal worldview and your religious convictions. I don't care who you are, whether you're a Muslim, a Hindu, or a Baptist, or a Pentecostal. Okay? Your political allegiance stems from two things. Your political worldview and your religious convictions, and typically, your political worldview stems from your religious convictions. So, when this separation of church and state, it's just it's it's, it's impossible. You can't separate people from their personal convictions. You can't. So now let's go a little bit further. Here's what I have done as your pastor for 13 years. I have previously shown and discussed the differences in the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. Have I done that? On Sunday morning and occasionally even on Wednesday night. And I've tried to, in that moment, I've tried to take myself out of it and just say, I'm just going to show you the platform, the 2012 platform. Now we have a new one, the 2016 platform. You can go online and read it. I was online this week just reading these things. Now, here's the reality about these parties. And I don't like the party system because it doesn't allow us to just stand for an individual because we have to look through the individual at times and just look to the platform upon which they stand. That's my personal belief. It doesn't you know, because how can you stand on the platform and say you're one thing when you stand on a platform that says you're something else? It's hypocrisy. So sometimes, here's the reality, sometimes both parties desire the same end result. There are some things that both parties desire the same end result, but the path to get there differs greatly. And that's where it creates the argument oftentimes. Number one, sometimes both parties want totally different results. Sometimes one party thinks that the United States should look this way, and sometimes the other party thinks the United States should look that way. Right? All right, let's go a little bit further. I have previously stated, I'm going to echo it again today, I have previously stated that I believe extreme liberalism to have taken over the traditional Democratic Party. And what you see today is not what you necessarily saw 40 or 50 years ago. That's my personal viewpoint. And here's what I've challenged Christian believers who, who have aligned themselves with the Democratic Party. You should dem- this should demand a response. If you're truly born again and you have historically been a part of the Democratic Party, you shouldn't just go with the trend of uh, full-blown progressive liberalism that you're seeing emerge in the Democratic Party. That's just my exhortation to you. Now, here's, what I, here's where I'm going to bring some clarity. This is my heart to yours again. I personally differ ideologically from almost all of the Democratic platform's progressive agenda. However, now, so let me say that so you don't miss that. I personally differ Ideologically, from almost all of the Democratic Party's progressive agenda. However, I have never made public issue over those differences except for two. I've been preaching for 20 years. Now, I I may throw out a little occasional slur, remark, or something like that. But I've never brought it to the forefront and said, this is what motivates. There's been two. And I'm going to share those again with you today. Number one. The difference to me is the support for abortion. And number two, the LGBTs, uh, the push within the Democratic Party for support for LGBT equality and gay marriage. I've staked it all on those two. Now, everybody else doesn't stake it all on those two. But those are the things that I found in my heart as the tipping point. Those are the things that I, Lee Brown, just said when i determined my worldview based upon my spiritual convictions... This is what moves me to align myself with a particular group. Now, let me go ahead, and I'm, what I'm going to do today is different. I'm going to reaffirm that reasoning today, just those two, just for just a brief moment. And I'm going to share some things with you. Here's Because uh, I want you to know what's in my heart and why. I'm trying to carefully explain. Just like Jesus' disciples, when they said, what were you meaning when you're talking about a net cast into the sea? What were you meaning when you're talking about the seed was beside the wayside soil or the seed was sown on stony ground? I I don't understand. What's your intent behind it, Lord? Or or let me give you another example to put it in a comparison. Remember where I preached two weeks ago about Jesus' statement on the Mount of Olives about the temple being destroyed? Remember that? And his disciples, they were wondering, what's the intent behind this? Why are you saying all these rocks or stones are going to be turned over? I want you to know my intention. When I do preach or teach along this line, It's all it, it gains its conviction from these two points right here. And that is abortion and the support for the, the, the LGBT movement and the equality, uh, marriage equality. Let me just ask you this. And, and, and you say, what is abortion? I'm going to say this, that most of you have never actually taken the time to, to actually go and to try to answer that question. It's difficult. It's difficult to go because if you Google search it to try to get information, you're going to see images that are more horrific than any uh, blood massacre movie that you could go see anywhere. And it's going to so – so if you're going to do that, you better be prepared. I'm still – I say this respectfully. I'm still, I can still remember my first image when Pastor Burton shared these things In 1990 or 91 at MacArthur Assembly of God. And I saw for the first time with my eyes called the silent scream. The silent scream is when the aborted baby, when penetration is made into the mother by the instrument that's going to abort the child. And they say that the the, the fetus has no pain, but it begins to scream. And, 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 And it screams until its body no longer can function. But it's a voice that no one can hear except for God. But God hears that voice. Now, let me go a little bit further. We have this question, is it a woman's right to choose? That's a, that's a question that many debate and contemplate. But uh, I, I want to go ahead and, and put a, a couple of things up here, if I can, for just a moment to, to talk about, uh, just real quickly, the, this, the context of what abortion actually is. Just for a moment of time, and I'm going to put it in a spiritual uh Principle, if I can, because this is what dictates my political allegiance. This is what moves me to stand on this stage and to challenge the listening audience today. And every time that I have done that for 20 years. In the first trimester of an abortion, it's typically an abortion pill, uh, such as what is RU-486. It's called the morning after pill, when it can cause a woman's body to just immediately, uh, what, it, what is it called, uh, miscarriage. And But but beyond that then in within the first trimester is a a vacuum aspiration and it's exactly what you think it is. It's the actual forcible removal of the baby through vacuuming it out of the mother's uterus. And so let's go a little bit further. The second trimester is a vacuum aspiration is used but also a surgical abortion takes place at that time because the baby often is too big to just use the vacuum aspiration. And so th- uh, this process is called uh, the dil- dilution evacuation it 's when the, the the doctor goes in vaginally you know uh, into the into the woman. forceps are used to grab parts of the baby. The forceps are pointed so that to be able to penetrate into the skin of the baby, and then part by part, limb by limb, the baby is pulled out of its mother now uh but then the, the skull, the skull is, has now by this time is too, is too hardened to come out. So he then has to take the instruments and crush the skull. And this was the reason of the, this was part of the conflict of what you saw with the um, Planned Parenthood and the selling of the body parts. When the abortionists, not knowing that they were being recorded, actually admitted that they would manipulate the abortion to protect certain parts of the, of the baby that they might could then again sell for higher dollar on the black market. And what's odd about that is the only person that's been indicted is the person that did the videoing. But So let me go a little bit further. The third is a surgical abortion, and it is, it is basically an abortive C-section. Let me give you a little bit of stats just to help you here today, just for a moment. Twelve states limit abortion to the first 20 weeks. 20 weeks or less. 89, 89% of all abortions are performed in the first term, 89%. But 11% are second- or third-term abortions. 11 states allow abortions uh, up to 20 weeks, and, and then they limit them after 20 weeks. Three states are after 20 weeks but are blocked by court. Court there's, It's tied up in court. But 24 states in the United States allow for late-term abortions, Sometimes even up until the, the ninth month, uh, the last day you know, of, of the pregnancy. In 2013, there were 11,000 babies aborted during late-term abortion. There are 162 clinics in the United States that allow late-term abortion. There are five clinics nationwide that will allow an abortion through nine months of pregnancy. Let me go just a little bit further. Here, let me give you just a little bit more stats to just kind of share this with you for a moment of time. Since the Roe versus Wade in 1973, we have 56 million American babies that have been aborted. Every year in the United States, there are more than a million abortions performed. Um, If you want to put that in numbers, just to know that, the number of American babies killed by abortion each year is roughly equal to the number of U.S. military deaths that have occurred in all the wars since the United States was formed in the 1700s. Approximately one-third of all American women will have an abortion by the age of 45. Approximately 47% of the women that get an abortion each year in the United States also have had a previous abortion. It's reported that 41% of all New York City pregnancies end in abortion. 78% of all abortions in New York City are performed on African American and Hispanic babies. One stat says 52% of all African American pregnancies now end in abortion. Many women get abortions in the United States uh, believed to be Christian, and Protestant women get 42% of all abortions, and Catholic women get 27% of all abortions. One shocking study found that 86% of all abortions are done for the sake of convenience. According to uh, an institute, the gut m- I can't pronounce the name, the average cost of a first trimester abortion at the 10-week mark is $451 dollars but many insurance companies now prefer abortion because the average cost of a vaginal childbirth with no complications is now over $9,000 during the fiscal year of 2014 planned parenthood snuffed the life out of 327,653 babies planned parenthood i'm just reading it the way it says maybe i wouldn't have used all of that language but i'm just reading it the way it was on the on the the website Planned Parenthood targets the poor. 72% of Planned Parenthood's customers have incomes that are equal to or beneath 150% of the federal poverty level. There are 30 Planned Parenthood executives that make more than $200,000 a year, and several of them make over $300,000 a year, while Planned Parenthood gets more than $400 million from the federal government each year. I just wanted you all to know that just for a moment of time. Now, here's where my inward conviction Overlaps with a modern-day controversy, a historic inward, uh, an inward conviction based upon a historical situation. Here's my question: Is abortion, birth control, family planning, or is it the same in essence as child sacrifice? Now I'm gonna just y'all hold your thoughts for just a moment. Let me let me let me go a little bit further. I've said this before, and I'm gonna say it again. My grievance has not necessarily been with the woman who has an abortion or the young girl who's 19 years old and she's pregnant and she doesn't know what to do. My grievance has been with the system that created it. I believe it's an evil invention. What I mean by that is the book of Romans warns us that there will come a time of evil inventions. And, and, and I believe that that's what, in my personal opinion, that's what this is. Let me use, I want you to think, I want, I'm going to read a passage of scripture, put it on the board, Psalm 106, for just a moment. I want to show you this, and i got one last thing, and then I'm going to close. One, I'm going I'm to close in just a moment. No, I'm not. moment for me could be like 15 minutes, okay? Can you all go to Psalm 106 real quickly if you can find that? Psalm 106, 34 through 39. If not, I'm going to go ahead and read it to you, because this was God speaking to ancient Israel. And I'm going to give you an analogy And see if you can just, if you can, you may think this is far extreme, but I'm going to just make this analogy. Psalm 106 says this. uh, In verse number 34, it says, This is God reproving ancient Israel. They did not destroy the nations concerning whom the Lord commanded them, but they were mingled among the heathen, and they learned their works. And they served their idols, which were a snare unto them. They sacrificed their sons And their daughters unto devils. And they shed innocent blood, even the blood of their sons and of their daughters, whom they sacrificed unto the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. And they were defiled with their own works and went a whoring with their own inventions. Y'all see that in the Word of God? Now, let me put you in the biblical example for just a moment. He's referencing at least two pagan Canaanite deities. One was Shemash, one was Molech. They were the pagan deities of the Moabites and the Ammonites. Real quickly, here's what they did. They took the child... From the mother. So it might be a priest like me, a preacher like me, would take the child from the mother. I'm just trying, you got to create this in, in your own mind. Let's perceive a, a scared mother who's ha- who knows that she'll, she'll be killed if she doesn't do this, or she's been brainwashed to believe that she's worshiping her God by doing this. So she's just given birth to this baby that she's carried in her womb for nine months, and the priest then takes it, and he walks over, and there's a pit in front of a statue to a a deity called Molech or Shemosh, and there's a burning fire, a burning fire. And that that priest takes that baby, and he tosses it in the fire. Now, if you read all through the Word of God, you'll see where where God reproved Israel because he said they even caused their children to pass through the fire. They burned their children in pagan sacrifice. Now, in an abortion clinic, what would take place is a young girl would go behind the curtain. A doctor would then, through instruments, go in and take the child out either piece by piece or whole if it's a late term abortion and if it sometimes if it, some states make you fight for its life if it's born alive sometimes they just let it die and that does happen and then they take that child that was aborted and they walk over they they change their garb If you were to look back 3,000 years ago, it might have had like ancient native garb, feathers, and you know, half-naked and body markings. And that's the priest that he goes and he throws it in the fire. Now we've taken that off and we put a white doctor's coat on and we take that and we throw it in an incinerator. That grieves me. And it moves me personally to say this. It moves me enough to make me never vote for someone who is aligned. Don't anybody respond. Don't respond to someone aligned with the Democratic Party because that party constantly fights to keep it legal. Now, in the next election, new appointees to the Supreme Court could overturn Roe v. Wade. Okay? Okay? Because it's the potential in the next four to eight years that five Supreme Court justices will be removed. And you could see a reverting. And you could see the abortion mill closed in America. But let me just say this. If Hillary is elected, you will see the demise of the American Republic before you will see Roe versus Wade overturned. Okay? Now, I've got a couple more, and I'm going to close. Let me switch. I want you to understand what's in my heart when I stand up here. And I don't do it very often, but when I do, I know I have an edge about me. I do. And I'm not trying to have an edge. I'm moved by something that I'm going to call an evil invention. That I see it as the shedding of innocent blood. And if there's a lady or a, child, a young girl that's contemplated or had an abortion, I'm telling you, that grace we sung about is great. And God is able to heal. He is so merciful. He is, church family, isn't he? He is. He can heal every wound that's in your heart and in your life. And please don't think that I'm finding resentment with you today. I find resentment with the system that created it, that put you in a situation that you felt like that was your way out of that pregnancy. That's the thing that I'm finding grievance with. Lastly today, the LGBT movement and the Democratic Party support of gay marriage. Now, I won't read the passages because I've run out of time. But let me just say this. The gay, lesbian, let's just see what LGBT stands for again. Lesbian, gays, or lesbian, b- or bisexuals, gays, and transgender. Is it LGBT, lesbian, gays, bisexual, and transgender? And now the addendum is sexual identity. Okay, right? You don't have to have a you don't have to change your sex through an operation. You just have to self-identify. That's kind of what. We're, that's where again, that far-reaching liberalism that I keep talking about—that's what I'm referring to. Many factors, to include scientific study, has shown us that this is not natural. But the Bible has consistently declared homosexuality as a sin. Old Testament language used strong words and abomination. New Testament language said God gave men and women over to their desires of their flesh, to do that which is unseemly. Romans 1. You've got to read it on your own. I just want you to read it. For sake of time, I won't go there. I have consistently stated God's grace can bring someone out of this lifestyle. How many believe that? The Bible says, such were some of you. We were all sinners, and we needed deliverance, no matter what our sin was. But God is gracious. But we're wrong if we don't tell you that you need to come to God for Repentance. And restoration and healing and deliverance. Because you can be delivered. The culture, the world has fed us the lie that you were born this way. But let me say this. The world has accepted the lie that has been created and accepted that men and women are born naturally this way. And it is not perversion of the natural order of sexuality even though it is against nature. Can I say that again? Even though it's against nature. Please don't get bored with me right now. This is very important, church family, okay? I'm going to ask you, please give me your attention for just a little bit longer. We continue to have propagation through this movement that changes the truth into a lie. And your children are specifically being targeted through the public school system and through media and through television shows until it is viewed as acceptable behavior that could have been corrected if they were confronted with the truth early enough in life. I believe that with all of my heart. Because I believe the Word of God can bring changes to your life. If you'll just surrender and accept what God said in his word about you, I'm telling you, God can do a change in your life. He can, by the power of his word. The movement has infiltrated its ideology into every social structure and system in America to include the most obvious politically, correct, through public education. Go online and read about the infiltration of the homosexual agenda in the public schools, especially in the northeastern states. <clears throat> you'll, be, um, you'll be shocked to see what has been taught to grade school-age children. Okay? Let me go a little further. The, pi- the business sector and religious, certainly the church. Businesses are putting pressures on states. We're not going to bring our business to you unless you, you know, if you are discriminating against the homosexual movement or whatever. The Supreme Court has declared it unconstitutional for states to define marriage as between one man and one woman. And here's why I take the stand that I do when I make a statement like I made last week. The Democratic Party is the champion for the LGBTs propaganda. They are the champion. And that alone is enough to make me never vote for someone who stands on that political platform. So here's where I'm closing. It says conclusion. My strong statement relating to people in the church... Who support the Democratic Party that I said I personally cannot find deep unity with? Let me explain that because that's what that's where I found myself grieved. I want to explain this carefully. It's based upon, but I've based my personal convictions upon those two things I just shared with you, in all sincerity. Those are overwhelming convictions in my heart. I cannot escape away from those. It doesn't matter what happens politically. I personally can never make myself align to a particular party that supports, openly supports the right for two men to get married, to say that that's a constitutional right to break the natural order that God's created, man and female, male and female. And I can never support uh, both a politician or a political party that says, you know, a woman has a right to make that abortion take place or to, and, and thus propagate it in America. That's me. You may feel entirely different about this. But I'm just sharing with you from the standpoint of me as your pastor, I want you to know why I make these st- strong statements. I said this. I personally cannot find deep unity because of this. It doesn't mean that I cannot be kind. It doesn't mean that I can't love or appreciate someone or truly value who they are. But deep fellowship belongs to people that you're in agreement with. Okay? Let me say that again. And I'm, I'm not going to emo- put my typical you know, emotion behind this. But true unity happens when people's hearts are knit together in agreement. How can two walk together lest they be agreed? So if you didn't believe in speaking in other tongues, and you didn't believe in the laying on of hands of the sick, and you didn't believe in worship like this, and you didn't believe in the blood of Jesus, then it would be hard for me as an Assembly of God minister or an adherent to find deep fellowship because our, we're, we're greatly estranged in that particular sense. And that doesn't mean that I wouldn't value you. Doesn't mean that, again, that I don't love you. It just means that, you know, that, do y'all know what I'm talking about? That deep unity, heart, Christ, deep Christ, the deep. Come on, I'm talking about like a husband and wife and deep brothers in the Lord, somebody or a pastor to his church family. When I say, I know, I put my heart in agreement with yours. I'm talking about that deepest moment of fellowship that can only come from people who are in true agreement. So I can respect someone's position, especially on the other issues. And I can differ from those issues and, 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 and not be moved. But my personal grievance, here's what I'm going to challenge you in closing. Why I, I wonder, I, this is why Jesus turned to his disciples and he said, Are you yet without understanding? Here's my personal grievances why don't you make these two issues your determining factor? I, I'll go to my grave wondering that. I don't understand why that doesn't, why that's not a because we Because if we align ourselves with something, we do so based upon a certain set of viewpoints. And, we either, we're, and so some are greater than the others, and sometimes it's just one or two becomes the tipping point, correct? And my grievance is, here's, here's what, I, what I wanted to write right here. I said, I don't understand why any genuine believer chooses climate change or minimum wage increase or the promise of free college or other things that you see in the democratic platform, uh, why, why you choose that over these two critical issues. I, I don't know. I don't understand that. And my conclusions on my predictions have been and will continue to be based upon these two issues. But I am going to warn those that have been aligned to the more progressive element of the democratic movement. Get ready. The infiltration of Islam will be the third thing. And you better get ready because it's it's already there, but it's coming. Okay? It's just coming. In essence... so. Th- I said this as I conclude. In essence, the same way for years, Protestants didn't worship in Catholic churches and Lutherans and Baptist churches. I said this, and I'm I kind of—I'm I, not trying to create it. Please, I'm not trying to create it. I'm just simply predicting it. I'm just predicting it. These two issues or three issues are going to be the dividing lines in our generation. We're not there yet, but it's not that far down the road. Okay. The original text, stand up with me, please. Please be in heart and please give me your, your, your attention here. Now, I don't know what time it is, and uh, I must have left my watch on the platform. Did I? Somebody stole my, my iPhone here today. Here's what 1 Corinthians 18 says. There must be heresy separations among you. NIV said, no doubt there have to be differences among you. In LT, there must be division among you so that, that, that you which have God's approval will be recognized. Here's what I said to end the message last week, and I'm going to paraphrase it. The only reason I'm paraphrasing it is because I, I was erratic on a couple things, but not, not to take away the intent of it, but I, I can have better language, I suppose. Um, I said, I don't know if I have God's approval or not in these issues. Only God can determine that. Can I say that again to you, Dave? I don't know. Only God But I have to speak and I have to live like I do. I have to speak from a place of conviction. And then I have to live my life, as you've heard me say before, like I'm right in these matters. That when I challenge you and I share with you honestly that I believe Christians ought to align themselves politically with those two issues at the forefront, not at the last 12 tenets of a particular party. I have a clear conviction for saying that to you. I don't know if this explanation does what it does to your personal convictions or your personal affiliation with a particular party or even this church. I do ask you to do this. Take a personal prayer stand. Pray for the end of the abortion mill in America. President Obama is so focused on emptying uh, Gitmo, so focused. Why can't we pray for the abortion mill? in America to just reach this end and max and let us look back on it and look back on it as a dark moment in the era of our, of our history but not be bothering our future or hindering our future. That's, that's what I'm asking. Pray. This is my personal conviction, but I believe it's biblical. I believe it's the lies of the LGBT movement to be exposed and pray sincerely for men and women to find freedom from the vice of homosexuality. Okay, I think that's fair, don't you? To pray as Christians for men and women trapped in the vice of homosexuality to find deliverance. And we want to see them delivered by the power of that blood of Jesus. Amen? And so I believe we need to pray as well for a shift in the American political system. That was the necessity of division, part two, explained. Can I have our heads bowed and our eyes closed? Father of heaven, I've taken...